you got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to John chapter six. John chapter six, where we're going to be. In fact, this week we are actually wrapping up John chapter six, and this has been quite a long chapter. It's taken us, uh, you know, three different messages over the last several weeks, but then also it's taken us about eight weeks to do it because we stopped from chapter six uh, in the middle of it, and then we're doing a series called Welcome to Our Family. So I'm going to kind of catch you up quickly because this chapter is really kind of defining moment or pivotal moment, if you will, in the gospel according to John, because as you're going to see at the last part of chapter six, this is a decisive moment where unfortunately a lot of people stop following Jesus because of the things that he has been saying, and it's very, very hard. So just to kind of catch you up quickly, at the beginning of the chapter, it started with a miracle of multiplication, that multiplication of the bread that we saw that when Jesus literally multiplied it and fed thousands and thousands of people. And then it switches from that to Jesus sending his disciples over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and then them having a storm along the way. And we talked about how the storm was a part of the story. And then they get to the other side and all these people that were following Jesus have missed him. They have missed him even though they were following him because they were following him for the wrong reasons. And the point that we've made for the last several weeks is that they were coming to Jesus for bread instead of coming to Jesus as bread. And that is such a crucial thing because how we come to Jesus will ultimately determine whether or not we are actually following Jesus, whether or not we are actually believers in Jesus or not. And that is what you're going to see today, this decisive moment where belief and disbelief, it kind of like parts the waters like, which side are you on? And so John chapter six, again, we're going to start in verse 60, and then we'll work our way down to verse 71. And that's kind of a recap quickly for you. But let me pray before we jump into today's message and then ask God to bless our time together. All right, pray with me. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace in our life. As always, God, we want to pause before we get into the text and recognize our need. As we're going to see today, God, that um, the flesh is no help at all. So we need your Holy Spirit. We need you to communicate to us. We need you to open our eyes so that we can see the truth, our, our ears, so we can hear the truth of your word. Because God, we do believe you, you have the words of life. There is no one else like you. And so as we open up your word, God, today, I pray that you would help us to see it and to believe it. And, and for those of us who maybe don't believe, God, I pray that you would create that belief today. And then for those of us who do, God, I pray that you would help us even in our seasons of unbelief, that we would come to this conclusion that the disciples come to today, God, that there's literally no one else besides you. So God, we thank you for loving us. And again, as we open up your word now, I pray that you would help me to communicate in a way that honors you and is helpful to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go John chapter six. And again, like I said, we're going to start in verse 60 and you will kind of understand because we're kind of jumping again into this story. And there's no way I could have done this message in one week's time. I mean, it's taken me three weeks and I still can't get it in under 30 minutes each week. All right. So verse 60, now we are hearing their response to what Jesus said last week when he was telling them they must be willing to eat his flesh and drink his blood, talking about they must believe in him. So verse 60, it says this, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Now, a couple things. Again, you have to remember the, the conversation that Jesus is having with them about him being the bread, about his body, about his blood, which is why we celebrate communion. Those are symbolic, like we talked about last week, of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us. He is the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah chapter 31 through 33. And so he's saying that to them, and, and they're just not getting it. And, and they are wrestling with what he is saying. And then we said last week that when Jesus was talking about being the bread that came down from heaven, the Jewish people were grumbling. Now, I told you that grumbling is, you know, when you're kind of whispering underneath your breath. It is when somebody is saying something to you, but, but you're not outright dis disagreeing with them yet, but you're kind of in your mind already contradicting them, right? And, and just for what it's worth, you know that's not really listening. If we're just listening to the contradict, that's not really listening, 
all right? So grumbling is when somebody's telling us something, we're like, I don't know if I believe that, right? It's that, that concept of, you know, your teacher saying something, your parents are saying, hey, go clean your, I don't know if I want to clean my room. And anybody who's ever been in a human relationship has probably had those times where you were talking underneath your breath about the other person, maybe even whispering it to someone else. One thing I want you to see, though, here is a progression. And this is what makes grumbling or gossip so dangerous. It moves from the crowd to the church. It moves from the Jewish people to the disciples now. See, it was just the Jewish people that weren't following Jesus that were grumbling. Now it specifically says his disciples were grumbling. Now, at this point in time, the, the term for disciples is still kind of a loose term in that you're going to see at the end of this chapter, there are true disciples and false disciples. But, but the word disciple means just at its base form as following Jesus. You're being apprenticed by Jesus. That's the concept of it. It's, it's how they learn. They didn't have colleges and universities like we do. You went and studied underneath someone and you were their apprentice. So Jesus has all these people that are following him, that are apprenticing underneath him, that are listening to his teaching. And we talked about that too, that, that so many times we want to follow, but we want to actually listen and let that person have authority in our lives. But I want you to see this. The Jewish people were grumbling and obviously within earshot of the disciples. So now they're hearing what they were grumbling about, and then they start grumbling themselves. So we have to be very careful. Again, this is just a sight, and this is a freebie for you, all right? We have to be very careful who we're allowing to grumble to us. We have to be very careful who we're listening to. Because if we're listening to people that are naturally grumbling, then it's probably not very long after that we're gonna start grumbling ourselves. And here's the trippy thing. It says in verse 61, Jesus, it says, but Jesus, knowing in himself, this is what trips me out about Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. And I think we kind of understand it now maybe because we haven't seen Jesus in, you know, face-to-face, -face, flesh and blood. But just imagine walking around with Jesus and people have always, you know, have commented, man, I wish I could have just seen him. And I have said, and I don't mean it sacrilegiously, it's like, I don't know if I would have want to walked around with Jesus because he could have said audibly what I was thinking and he already knows it without me saying it. And this is the trippy part. He knows within himself what's going on within myself. Think about that. He knows within himself what's going on within myself. See, you may or may not know what's going on inside of me, but God knows what's going on inside of me. So when it comes to God, it does no use to play games. Have you ever felt like when you're talking to God, if you're praying, you got to butter him up? You know, you got to grease the skids a little bit and be like, God, you know I love you. You got to turn on worship music for a few minutes, get your worship on. You got to sing, you got to come to church, and then you're like, maybe you'll listen to me. You think he's not aware of that? And this changed, and I've said this many times, this changed my prayer life really when I was in my 20s. When I just started realizing God already knew what I was really thinking, and so it changed how I talked to him. Now I say things like, God, you know I really want to sin right now. You already know that I really want to do this thing. And I'm being honest with you straight up. I want to do it. You already know I like grumbling. You already know I want to about her. What if we were honest like that with God in our prayers? Do you think we would grumble less? Let me say it to you like this. What if we started talking to God like we talked to our hairdresser? Ooh. Say what? Right? What if we started talking to God like we talked to our Facebook page? What, what if we started talking to God with the understanding that he already knows the wickedness of our hearts? See, that's what trips me out about him. 
he knew in himself that they were grumbling. And here's where he goes a step further. He asked them, do you take offense at this? Now, here's what's crazy about this word, take offense. A couple things. One, literally the Greek word for this, let's see if you can figure out the English word. The Greek word is scandaliso. What do you think the English word is? Come on, somebody. Scandal, right? So long before there was a TV show, there was a Greek word. So here's what Jesus is saying. You think that's a scandal? What I told you, eat my flesh, drink. You think that's scandalous? Now, here's another thing that's interesting about this word. This word here, notice it says in English, take offense. Well, this is a verb, and it's written in such a way, and I try to say this to you often so you kind of understand the, the thrust of what he's getting at here. It's written in what's called a present active, present tense active voice indicative, which that simply means this is something they are actively doing. Now, watch this. So if somebody says something, and I think it's scandalous, in order for me to think it's scandalous or take offense, I actually have to do something. So let me say it to you like this. If someone has offended you, it's because you've been actively involved in taking it. It can't just be, well, they did this and I was a passive recipient to it. That's not how it works. When someone says something, again, instead of assuming the best, asking for clarification, saying, uh, uh, pastor, uh, you know, teacher, what did you mean by uh, eating your flesh and drinking your blood? Instead of assuming the best, Asking for clarification, not accusing him. They're grumbling and taking offense. Don't miss that. So watch this. They are active participants in the scandal. They are active participants. How many times in our lives could we have stopped the progression of a sinful situation if we wouldn't have taken offense and instead would have engaged with them by assuming the best, asking clarifying questions and not accusing them. We might have stopped it right there. And again, this is not even the main point of the sermon. I'm just wanting to point out to you how Jesus is handling. He's like, basically what he's saying is, you're offended by this because you've allowed it to offend you. And so if we walk around and we live in a very um, kind of, openly radar up type culture where we're always heightened to the offenses of others. Well, they can't offend you unless you take it. You are present, active, involved in it. Now, again, I'm not dismissing what they said or did, but what I'm saying is you have a responsibility in the scandal. You have a responsibility, and if you just take it and then grumble, you're missing out on a reconciliation that could have happened. So that's this scenario. Now look at verse 62. <laughs> Again. Remember, they're, they're struggling with the fact that Jesus came down. Because, you know, aren't you Joseph's son? Verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Here's what Jesus just said. If you have a problem with the fact that I came down... Just wait till I go up, baby. And, and this is what, again, we'll get into this at the end, what makes Jesus utterly unique. Jesus was not a natural born human that grew up, taught some good stuff, and then at the end, ascended. There are other humans throughout human history that have had that type of trajectory in their life. Oh, they are good teachers. Oh, they were good people. And you know, good people go to heaven. That's the classification that almost every other person outside of Christianity puts Jesus in. And that's not, um, that's not accurate. In fact, that's heresy. Jesus 
ascended, now notice what he says, to where he was before. He ascended after he rose again because he first descended. And they're tripping out over the fact that he said he descended because they're like, ain't you Joseph's boy? He's like, no, I'm the heavenly father's boy. Kind of missing it. He's like, if it's tripping you out that I've descended, just wait. Just wait till I ascend. Now, the ascension, uh, theologians have a couple different thoughts on what this is, two primary ones. One, and Jesus actually talks about this in John, I believe it's John 3, when he talks about, like, in, Mo, in, Moses, he, uh, in Moses' day, he lifted up the serpent. He said, in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So one interpretation of this is when Jesus ascends onto the cross, when he is lifted up onto the cross. And, and here's what he's getting at. He's, oh, you think it's a scandal of what I said? Just wait until the Son of God is on a cross. That's a big scandal. That's scandalous because the son of God shouldn't be on a cross. So that's one viewpoint, which I think that's an accurate, fine viewpoint. And a lot of times in the Bible, it's not one or other, it's both, it's yes. And the other viewpoint is not when he was lifted up on a cross, but after his body was placed in the tomb on the third day, he ascended. He rose again. And then after 40 days of being alive, he his, what we now call his ascension. He went up. So depending upon your interpretation, the point is simply that Jesus is saying, if you think it's scandalous that I'm talking about a supernatural birth, just wait until you see a supernatural resurrection. Just wait until you see, if you think that like what God did back here was scandalous, you ain't seen nothing yet, baby. And then he says this line, which is important. In fact, I could do the whole sermon on just this text. Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And this is where, and I mentioned this last week or the week before, maybe last week and they were grumbling because I made the point of more human talking won't solve the problem. We need a divine intervention. Well, this is Jesus basically echoing that thought process and saying, listen, if you're going to accurately understand Jesus, you can't do it from a fleshly perspective. There has to come a point in time where the Holy Spirit, notice it was capital S, gives life. Which basically he's saying, you can't human reason your way into this thought process because the flesh is no help at all. Now, I think anybody who is a believer would readily admit, yeah, I know that the flesh is no help at all when it comes to salvation. I got that. But let me ask you another question. When it comes to sanctification, which is growing in that salvation, why do we rely on our flesh so much? See, the biblical concept of salvation is way broader than we typically think. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. We tend to think about salvation in terms of a past tense thing. I was saved. Like something happened in my past. When I was 13, when I was 25, when I was 42, whatever, it happened. And that's when our spirit was saved. And then we think of salvation in a future tense, like he's gonna come again one day and he's gonna raise my body, right? I'm gonna have a new glorious body. We all look to that, to the, that point that day because we don't have to do Weight Watchers points anymore, all right? Like we don't have to worry about carbs and all that stuff anymore. We're gonna have a new, awesome, glorious body. So we think of past tenses of salvation as something to happen and then something that will happen. But everything in the middle is on you. But here's what I want you to think, and I think this is the biblical idea of salvation, and here's the reason why. If you'll notice in the Gospel of John, he actually doesn't talk about being saved. But you want to know what word he uses like over a hundred times? 
Life. 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 He just did it. The spirit who gives life. So here's how I want you to think about salvation. Salvation happened to you. It is currently happening to you. And it will happen to you. It's so much broader than a one-time event in the past or a one-time event in the future. And this is why I think a lot of us as Christians struggle because I know I wasn't taught and maybe I was and I just didn't listen, but I for sure didn't understand that God never asked me to do all this stuff for him in the middle where I got to obey and do all this stuff and I better do it or he's going to be mad at me. What I didn't understand is in the same way, watch this, in the same way I couldn't save myself in the past from a going from death to life, I also can't live this life without him either. Because he is life. And I think so many of us get so frustrated in our walking with Jesus because we're trying to do it in our flesh. We're thinking that if we just try harder, buckle down, you know, give it the old college try. You know, we really shame ourselves real good. You know, really beat ourselves up real good. You know, instead of just serving one gathering, I'm going to serve two now. Instead of 10%, I'm going to give 12. You know, like I'm going to up it so that God sees I'm really serious. I'm really serious this time, God. How many times have you prayed something about you were really serious and a month later you went back to doing the same old thing? Were you, were you serious or not? Yeah, if you're anything like me, you're serious. But you started relying on your flesh again. And you didn't come to this realization that we must come to every day. The flesh is no help at all. Let me say it to you like this in the Greek, which is very interesting to me. Uh, no help at all is actually three words. And no is a word, help is a word, but at all in the Greek doesn't translate like that. Literally, it translates no one or nothing. So in the Greek, it would read like this. The flesh is no help, nothing. Or no help, no one. So when I was thinking about that, I'm like, I know this is bad English, but I'm gonna give it to you as a point but it just made sense to me. So you might wanna write this down. I got it here on the screen. Our flesh equals no help, no one. You see what I'm doing there? It helps no one. Your flesh, no help to no one. Now watch this, and I didn't catch this when I first read this through. What was he just talking about with them earlier? In terms of communion, his what? Flesh. And he said, you must eat this. I misunderstood that that eating wasn't a one-time thing. Do you have to eat every day to live? The answer is yes. Come on now. Yes. So in the same way that you have to eat on bread every day to live, every day you better eat on Jesus too on his flesh, and here's the other part of it. His flesh, and here's what I did. I just reversed the words. What's the opposite of no? Yes, help stays the same. What's the opposite of no one? Someone, it's on the screen, it's easy. Come on, right? So my flesh, no help, no one. His flesh, yes, help someone. Now I got all jazzed about that. And I know it's bad English, but don't you know that's some great theology? That's some great theology to come to the understanding. Listen, God's not asking me to fire up my flesh and get it done. Somebody said to you like this, God has never given you a command that he would not give you the grace to obey. In fact, this was a scandal. It goes all the way back to Augustine and Pelagius, if you're interested in theological things. Because St. Augustine, who I quoted last week, said, God, command what you will, 
but empower what you command. And his point was this, you have the authority, you're God, you can command whatever. But when you command it, you have to empower me to do it because I can't do it. And this is what I've told you before, the gospel is far gooder than you thought. The gospel is not just, have you been saved? The gospel is, are you currently being saved? Are you living, watch this, out of the life of Jesus? Because Jesus just said, your flesh is no help to no one. No help, nothing. Now, does nothing mean something? Yes or no? No. We live in a weird world today where terms no longer mean anything. Man doesn't mean man. Female doesn't mean female. It's like someone saying, I'm a vegetarian, but I eat meat. Well, that's a contradiction of terms, bro. But think about this. How many of us live our lives with the inherent contradiction? Oh, the flesh is no help. But tomorrow we're going to try to do it in our flesh. And that's the good news. Jesus is saying, no help. It's the spirit. Now let's keep going. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Again, I've already dealt with this, but Jesus keeps bringing it up. And what he's saying is this. In coming to God, your flesh does nothing. So think about that. This is why God doesn't save good people because there is no good people. This is not God helps those who help themselves. This is God helps those who have no shot at helping themselves. This is I can't do it on my own. God, if you don't do it, I can't do it. And that's why Jesus is, and I'll come back at this at the end. He's saying again, listen, only the work of the Father can overcome your resistance to me in being, in being saved in the past and being saved now and being saved in the future. You and I are 100% dependent upon the work of God in our life. Now, verse 66 and 67. If you've been around here, I've taught on this verse before, but I've been waiting to teach it as we actually walk through John. But look at what it says. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Now, um, I've told you this before, but when the, these letters were written, when John wrote this, he didn't number them. So the chapters and numbers came later in the 9th and 10th century by groups of monks that were trying to help people once the New Testament was canonized, which just simply means brought together in a complete book, help people read it. And there's some places in the Bible where it's very odd to me that they put a chapter division. I'm like, that, that, that thought should be back over there, or they put a verse. But then there's times like this where I'm like, this is just too uncanny for this not to be God. Now, I don't know if you've already caught this, but that was verse 66 in John chapter what? Six. So that verse is John 6, 66. 6, 66. Now, where else have you heard three sixes before? The book of Revelation, who watched this, was also wrote by John. And in that book, he highlights the numbers 666 as the sign of the Antichrist. Now, I told you last week there's not just one Antichrist, there's many. In fact, I would probably go so far as to say there's Antichrist in every generation. But we live in a world, 
And I say in a world, let me back up for a second. There's a lot of Christians today who have been discipled into one kind of worldview when it comes to end times. And so people have asked this question, oh, with COVID, with all this stuff, are we in the end time? As if it is one set of a series of events that happens in sequential order with the church being raptured, seven years of, you know, three and a half years of of goodness and then three and a half years of tribulation. And then at the end of that, Jesus returns again. And then there's a literal thousand year reign. If you're asking me, I don't believe in that timeline. There's a lot of reasons for that. And I'll teach on the book of Revelation at some point in the future. But here's the point I'm trying to make to you. There's a lot of Christians today because, you know, we've gone through COVID and this vaccine and all this type of stuff. And I'm not making a statement about vaccines. So don't hear me say that. But there's a lot of Christians who have their kind of spiritual antennas up and they're like, are we in it? And what I would love to, well, not, what, I would, what I want to lovingly say to you is this. Friends, we've been in it. We've been in it since Pentecost. I mean, think about what happened to the Christians in Rome. They were being hauled into the Colosseum and made in to be Roman candles and were brutally beaten. And there were plagues. And what made Christianity spread was during the time of those great plagues, they actually went out and brought the sick in and then the Christians died from the plagues themselves. And then all the Romans were like, who in the world would do something like that? We've been in it. We've just gotten so used to in the West not having to face persecution like this. But our brothers and sisters in China, in India, just a few years ago, do you realize the country of India kicked out every Christian nonprofit? This happens all over the world. We're just not attuned to it. But then you start getting a little bit of persecution coming and Christians are like, where's the Antichrist? Where's the mark of the beast? Is it a chip in that shot? Right? Don't act like you hadn't had these conversations. And here's what I would like to say to you. Here's why I'm pointing this out. I would rather you be far less concerned about where we are in the events and realize that the spirit of the Antichrist is trying to get you to turn back all the time. Not just in the end times. Although I've already told you, I think we're in the end times. So here's what amazes me. It amazes me that Christians freak out when this stuff happens. But when it's not happening, they're not really thinking about Jesus. Like, it was amazing to me when we didn't meet for a few months, the amount of people that were so mad that we couldn't meet, but yet they weren't meeting with us when we were meeting. And what I'm saying to you is this, I'm not, again, I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I don't know where we are in this whole thing. And you may know, and there may be somebody that knows. I don't know. But here's what I know. John 6, 66 is the spirit of Antichrist. And here's what he's trying to get everyone to do. Turn back and no longer walk with Jesus. And sometimes he does that through persecution. But watch this. Sometimes he does that. Not through persecution, but through prosperity. I'm far more concerned about Christians who are living very prosperous lives than I am about Christians who are living persecuted lives. Because if you go look at church history, the church always grows fastest during persecution. The best thing that ever happened to the church in China was China became a communist country and pushed the church underground. It exploded. What if God is bringing persecution to the West? I don't know if he is or not, but I'm just saying what if to wake us up to what's really going on 
because we had been lulled to sleep by the prosperity of what we have been experiencing and we were actually turning our back on Jesus. I'm far more concerned about that. And here's why. This word turn back, it means, you know, a lot of what we think it means, go away, depart, withdraw. But it also can mean, and this is kind of what tripped me out, it also can mean to pass away or cease to exist, i.e. die. So when these disciples turned back, watch this, in an essence, they passed away. They passed away. Now they were still physically alive, but at that moment, their spiritual fate was sealed. And it was as though they passed away. Now I'm gonna give you this point and, and, and I'll explain it to you because I'm not trying to freak you out, freak you out, but I do want to sober you up. Watch this. When someone turns away from Jesus, that could be the day they pass away. When someone turns away, says, the words of Jesus are just too hard. I just don't believe that the Bible is right about marriage. I just don't believe that the Bible is right about this. I just don't believe that the Bible is right about that. I just don't believe that Jesus is right about this or Jesus is right about that and you turn away. That might've been the day that you passed away. And you say, uh, were you talking about end times and now you're talking about passing away, pastor? Uh, I don't really like this sermon. What's well, what's in there, right? But here's why I'm telling it to you. It better sober you up. Open your eyes to the spirit of the Antichrist who is at work today to get you and I to turn away. You and I better wake up and open our eyes and speaking of the book of Revelation, you know, the first several chapters, it's written to the churches and there's something that Jesus says over and over to the churches. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I think the Spirit is speaking to the churches today. And what the Spirit is saying is, don't turn back. Don't turn back. Keep walking with Jesus. You stick with Jesus. You keep walking with Jesus. You stay close to Jesus because if you turn away, that could be the day you pass away. And you may live for 30 more years but be dead and not even know it. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that loved ones that you have that have turned away, that they're dead that their fate is sealed. I'm not God. I don't know that. But what I do know is that Jesus turned to his disciples and asked them a question. You want to go away as well? And I think I'm not responsible for someone else's salvation. I don't know if they are or not saved. But what I need to do is constantly ask myself that question. Do I want to go away as well? Now, here's the good news. God has a habit of raising dead things, doesn't he? So even your loved ones that turned away and, and have passed away, spiritually speaking, you're like, well, they were always dead. I know, I get it. You keep praying for them. You keep begging the Father, to draw them in. You keep asking God, overcome their resistance to you. But then you make sure that you are not turning away, that you're staying close. And look at Peter's response to the question that Jesus asked. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. See, I, I told you last week uh, you know, about people deconstructing. A lot of people are losing their faith because they came to Jesus for bread and then they didn't get it, so they walked away. But I made the point that if you come to Jesus as bread, you'll never walk away. Because you came to Jesus for Jesus. And here's what I mean by this. And I want to encourage this. Because a lot of times people think that in church world that you got to turn your brain off in order to be a Christian. No, no, no. I want you to research it. Because if Jesus is true and Christianity is real, I'm not afraid of what you'll find in the closet. Because here's what I know. If you can't answer the question to Jesus asking you, are you going to go away too? You know, there's a, there's a lot of people leaving the church today. Jesus is saying, were you going to go too? Well, can you answer the question like Peter does? Who else can we go to? To whom else can I go, Jesus? There's no one else. No help. No one. There's, there's no one else. And, and this is what I'm saying to you. Investigate it. If you genuinely investigate the truth claims of Christianity, I 100% believe you will follow Jesus the rest of your life. Because anyone else who would ever tell you a truth claim died, was buried, and stayed there. But Jesus did not. Remember how he said, just wait till I ascend. That's my point. There is no one else. And I'm not saying that we don't have seasons of doubt. I'm not saying we're not questioning. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying that is this, at the bottom of all that, there better be a rock solid foundation that there's no one else. You better do what Peter said. Look at what he said. We have believed, watch this, past tense, and have come to know. We've believed it, but still I'll put my trust in and I've come to know. Now that phrase I've come to know means I've come to know it experientially. I've experienced it. Not only did I believe the truth claims, but I've personally experienced it. I'm alive. I have life. And then he says, you're the holy one. No one else has words like you do. Now look at Jesus' response, and this is just trippy, man. Verse 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Chapter 6 ends. On to chapter 7. We'll get into that next week. On to the Feast of Booths. We'll get into that next week. Why in the world, this is now twice in this discourse that it gets brought up about people betraying him. And then specifically, he calls, even though he doesn't name him Judas, he says, did I not choose you? And yet one of you is a devil. You read verses like that and you're like, I don't know what that means. Here's my humble opinion as to what I think it means. The reason why there's no one else, the reason why the flesh is no help at all, the reason why you don't have to turn back from walking with Jesus is because there's no one else who has the devil under his control. Think about that. This is not, this is why Christians, it would do us well to read our Bible and quit freaking out so much. We keep freaking out because all this is getting bad and it's gonna get bad. If you ever listen to my sermons, it's gonna get worse and Jesus is gonna return. That's what's gonna happen. Read it. But as it gets worse, here's what you can know. He's controlling it all. He chose the devil. Did you catch that? He said, did I not choose you? 
And yet one of you is a diabolus. That's the Greek word. A devil. Watch this. Jesus chose the one who was going to betray him. Why? Now, Judas freely chose that. God didn't make him choose it. He chose it. But God is sovereign over all human choice. Watch this. The trial that we're going through right now, please, and I've seen so many people do this. This is from the devil. The devil. The de- everything's the devil. Every flat tire, every dead battery, every virus, everything is the devil. We're like rebuking devils. <laughs> Maybe it's not the devil. Now, I'm not saying a devil's not involved. But maybe that devil was placed there by God to fulfill his purpose. So therefore, I don't have to rebuke him. I just have to trust God that that devil is on a short leash and can't do anything outside of God's control. Tell me someone else that's in control of the world like that. That's why Jesus brought it up. You want to know the main point of John chapter 6? You can trust God even with the devils in your life. You can trust God even when cancer comes. You can trust God even when you lose your job. You can trust God when the economy shuts down. You can trust God when we're persecuted. You can trust God. Because the worst thing that ever happened to human history was Judas sold Jesus out and God used it to raise Jesus up. Munch on that bread. Believe on that. Stay close to that. Keep walking with him. Don't let the spirit of the Antichrist lead you to turn back because there is no one else who has the words of life. So let me leave you with these two questions and then we're done. To whom can you go? You don't have to answer this. It's rhetorical, but I want you to think about it. To whom can you go? The title of the message this week is To Whom Shall We Go? What Peter said in response. Last question is this. To whom are you going? Right now, to whom are you going to? Remember, Our flesh, no help, no one. If you're not going to Jesus, you got no shot. But if you are going to Jesus, even the devils in your life got no shot. I'm not scared of the devil. I'm not scared of a country. I'm not scared of a virus. I'm scared of turning away from Jesus. And so I want you to live with that type of life too. Where you say, Lord, I don't understand this, but who else am I going to go to? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth of your word and how you spoke it to a group of people in a place and time and how you controlled and supernaturally intended the actions of even evil. As Joseph said in Genesis 50, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God, we don't know how it works, but we don't have to know how, we just have to know who. And so God, I pray that we would listen to this message and we would come to the conclusion today that there is no one else 
and we would quit our grumbling about the condition of our country and, and even to some degree our grumbling against you about how we don't understand what you're doing and we would just trust. We would come to that place like Peter and say, Lord, to whom else shall we go? We've come to know and believe that you're the Holy One. And even the devils in this world will not thwart your plan because you turn the greatest defeat of Jesus on the cross into the greatest victory to Jesus raising from the dead. And you will do the same with us if we're in him. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. If you've never trusted Jesus, if you've never come to that place where you could say like Peter, there's no one else and you haven't believed and come to know, then that can start today. You can be saved. Salvation can start today. And if that's you, you can pray with me. You don't have to do it out loud, but it goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me, that you sent your son in my place. Jesus descended, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, and ascended for me. So I believe that you alone have the words of life. So would you save me? Forgive me of my sins. I trust you alone. Again, nobody looking around or talking, but if you've just prayed to trust Jesus with me today, and you're in one of our physical locations, you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that. Thank you. We got men and women gonna walk around and put a gift in your hand and when they do, you can put it down. And whether you're in a physical location or online, you can fill out our digital connection card, let us know who you are. Then lastly, for those of us who have trusted Jesus, I wanna encourage you, no matter what happens in the world, no matter what people try to convince you, don't turn away from Jesus. Don't turn away because that might be the day you passed away. Don't go to anyone else because there is no one else and ask the spirit of God to give you help to get through this day because he will. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. Would you now empower us to live it out, to live this kind of life trusting that you're in control and you're sovereign. You're superintending it all. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Love you, church.